0: if you would turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 3. We're going to be looking at 3 and 4, but we're going to start our time together in the Word and just a a short passage in chapter 3, and so if you'll be going that direction as we continue our sermon series in Exodus. Before we do, though, I feel like I need to set the record straight on something. Last year, a A little bit later than this, I had the great privilege and um, really the honor of being able to judge uh, officers for FFA, and it was a great, great time. I really appreciate it. I enjoyed it a great deal, but I noticed as some of you even were there and doing that, that some of you were kind of looking at me funny, and some of you seemed to be scared, and some of you seemed to be trying overly hard to smile at me. And I can remember sitting there and going, this is odd. I don't don't know what's happening. And so between two of the the students, I said out loud, is it just me or is something weird going on? And Mara Jensen starts laughing. And I'm like, what's going on? She said, well, today at school, knowing that you were going to be a judge, Pacey Redding went around and told everyone that you were the meanest person that he knew. (laughs) Ahem. I hope this morning that we can dispel that. I greeted you with a smile. I welcomed you into our home. You saw plenty of children hanging around me and none of them felt threatened or worried. Okay. I'd like to think that I'm not the meanest person you've ever met in the world. So but we are glad that you all are here. We're glad if you're a guest with us that you're here um, and certainly hope that we can make you feel like family and make you feel at home here. We started our sermon series in Exodus last week. Sorry, I just caught it the Redding family over here. Um, I, 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 we started our sermon series in Exodus last week, and we talked about a couple of things. One, that Exodus is both one of the most familiar books in the Bible to us, and it's also one of the most unfamiliar books in the Bible. Most familiar because if, uh, even if you didn't up in, tr- grow up in church, you probably have heard of the Ten Commandments. You may have heard of Moses. You may have heard the party in the Red Sea. All of those things come from Exodus, at the same time, even if you did grow up in church, many of us did not read the second two-thirds or the two-thirds latter two-thirds of the book where we see what happens after the 10 commandments are given, where the tabernacle is constructed and talked about and all those uh, the parts of the law are put together. And so in that sense it's a very unfamiliar book. And so we're hopeful that as we go through this together over the course of the next several weeks that we will have a better understanding of this wonderful book of Exodus. And part of the reason that it's good to have that understanding is because Exodus is a wonderful foreshadowing of how God desires to relate to his people throughout history. That Exodus, that when we talk about God's salvation, when we talk about even baptism, when we talk about all these different things, that all of those are Exodus things. And so it's good for us to understand this book well because God still continues to operate in this manner now. All of the things that God does in Exodus and all of the things that are true of God in Exodus, he still does now and are still true of him now. And so it's good for us to have an understanding of what's going on in this book. Hopefully by now you found Exodus chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 7 of that book and go through verse 12. So if you would please stand with me that we can honor the reading of God's word this morning. We're going to read those few verses together and then we'll dig in here. Verse 7, it says, Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of "...to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Pezrites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring out the children of Israel out of Egypt?" He said, but I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Let us pray. Father, we come before you this morning, and we are so incredibly thankful that we get to come to this place in Vandalia, Missouri, and serve you here, that it is a sign that you are who you say you are, that you will do the things that you promised to do. Father, we are thankful that you have come and rescued many of us. We are thankful that you send us on a mission to rescue many more. Father, we pray this morning that as we listen to your word, that we would be reminded of the great glories that you have accomplished and that you are, and that we would be ready to join you on that rescue mission that you've called each of us on. We pray this in the beautiful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. When we come to Exodus, when we come to Exodus, in this particular passage, we see something interesting. We see God sharing with a man his desires, his plans. It's an interesting part of a relationship when you get to the point where the other individual begins to share, or you begin to share, your desires, your plans, your hopes, and your dreams. That's a, that's a deepening of the relationship that goes beyond just a surface level, how are you doing, how was your week, right? It's an important step in a relationship, and we're reminded here as God begins to share with Moses his desires and his plans and what he, do, what he wants to do for the people of Israel. We're reminded that we don't serve a God that simply created us and then lets us be. Nor do we serve a God who desires to just tell us what to do. But that we serve a God who desires to have a relationship with us that is back and forth where there is open communication and where he opens himself up to us and says, here's what I love. Here's what I hate. Here's what I want. Here are are my plans. And how we can be included in those things. That's a big deal. It's a big deal that the God of all the universe, the Creator of all things, has through His word, through His Holy Spirit, designed and designed everything in such a way that He would be knowable, not just on a surface level again, but that He would be knowable in a deep way. And so God begins to unfold these desires. He, he begins to unfold these plans to the man Moses, through the burning bush, this bush that is on fire but is not being consumed, and it pulls Moses over, and Moses like, i got to see this thing. God begins to describe what it is he wants, what it is he desires. The first thing that we see here in these desires is the, the desire to rescue, specifically the desire to rescue his people. Now, for those of you that maybe don't know Exodus very well or weren't with us last week, You be reminded that when we get to chapter 1 of Exodus, the people of Israel, the nation of Israel, is trapped in Egypt. They are slaves there, and it is a bitter slavery. It is one marked by oppression. It's one marked by physical violence. It's one marked by death and sorrow and grief. It is a hard, hard thing. They got there through a series of circumstances uh, through Joseph, and you can read that at the end of Of Genesis, but they get to this place and they're in slavery and they begin to call out to God. The end of Exodus chapter 2 where we ended last week, it says that during those many days the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel And God knew. God knew. He hears the cry of his people, the cry of Israel, and he says, I see you. He knows them individually. He knows them as a nation. He knows their suffering. He knows their needs. He knows a plan, and he knows that the time is now. It's interesting that when you, and we touched on this last time, it's interesting that as you go through chapter 2, before Israel ever cries out, before Israel ever asks God for help, God has already seen to it that a baby named Moses is born, that that baby is rescued from from danger that that baby is raised in his home with his mom early on. And then later, 11, 12 probably, he is taken and he lives the rest of his, his early adulthood in the palace in Egypt. Raised under the Pharaoh's daughter's care. All of these things coming together. God is already putting together a plan. He, God does not wait on you to cry for help for him to have a plan in place. He's just waiting for you to ask. So he hears all these things. He's already got a plan in place. The people cry out, and he shares with Moses his plan to rescue his people. He says, I have come down. In verse, sorry, verse 8, I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land. In other words, a big land. He says, I have come to rescue We talked last week, though, that when God does something in Exodus, it's always a foreshadowing of what he's going to do later. And God's desire to rescue his people does not stop with Moses. It does not stop with the Israelites coming out of slavery. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus says these things. Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 16, it says, he went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom, he stood up to read, and a scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, the Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, and to recover the sight for the blind." to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. It's interesting. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh comes and he sits before before the people and he reads from them scripture and he announces why he has come to earth and why he has come is to set the oppressed free. He's come to set the captives free. Who is he talking about there? Who is it that Jesus says needs freedom? Well, he's not talking about anyone that's physically in slavery. Who he is talking about is those that are are in captivity to sin. You see, we are born with a sin nature. We, in essence, are born into slavery. Sin is that thing that we do that God tells us not to do or not doing things that God tells us to do, and we don't have to be taught that. I have a three-year-old daughter. You may have seen her up here for FFA and for visitors. You you may have seen her up here and sitting with me. No one has to teach a three-year-old how to punch someone. All of you are laughing because you know it's true. Uh, No one has to teach a three-year-old how to be jealous. No one has to teach a three-year-old how to steal. No one has to teach a three-year-old how to lie or be disobedient to their parents, right? It's just there. It's part of our nature. No one had to teach me that either. It was just there. And it holds us captive, the Bible says, It imprisons us, whether we realize it or not. We are trapped, and we're unable to escape, not only from that sin nature, but we're unable to escape the consequences of that sin. Just as when we break the law, there are consequences to that law, so too when we break God's law, there are consequences to that, namely eternal death. God's desire, though, that he states again and again and again and again throughout Scripture is that his desire is to save, to set his people free. Through Moses, he does that for the Israelites, but for us, he sends someone better than Moses. He sends Jesus Christ. Jesus lives a perfect life so that he can pay our penalty, our consequences for us on the cross and through the resurrection. He sends a better Savior than Moses. But his desire is to rescue, and he's been doing that for all of human history. But he also shares with us another desire, and that is to establish, (coughs) to give a home Going back to our passage, it says that he has come to bring them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to a place of the Canaanites. And then he goes on to list several other nations that are there. He's telling them a geographical place. If you looked on a map now, you can still find Israel, that, that, that promised land that God had given to that nation This desire to establish them in a home is a fulfillment of a promise that had been made hundreds of years ago. Hundreds of years previous to that comment, there had been a man named Abraham whom God had said, come follow me. Abraham does that, and God makes him a promise. He says, if you will continue to follow me, I will make you a great nation through whom I will bless all the world, a prediction of Jesus Christ. And he says, and I will give you a home. I will give you this land. It took time for that promise to be fulfilled. Abraham would have one legitimate son, Isaac. He would, Isaac would have two sons, Esau and Jacob. Jacob would na- later be renamed Israel. Israel would have 12 sons. And by the time they moved to Egypt, there are about 70 people. That's not a nation that can control a land. That's a large family, okay? That's a large extended family. Some of you may have families bigger than that right now if you count cousins and uncles and aunts. And God keeps them in Egypt, and for a time that's good, and they're protected, and they're safe, and they grow, and they multiply, and they become hundreds of thousands, maybe even a a low million number. And at that point, they do come under oppression, but God says, now's the time. Now you will, I'm gonna take you home. It's interesting, again, God's desire to rescue is for then and for now. God's desire to establish is for then and for now. Jesus tells us in John chapter 4, or sorry, John, the gospel of John, that he has gone to prepare a place for us and that he will come back for us. Revelation 21, maybe uh, a passage that we have read here countless times But it is so, so sweet to hear this promise again and again. Revelation 21, starting in verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne, saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man." He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eye, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. You see, God is in the business of rescue, but he is also in the business of establishing his people in a home. And the home that we look forward to is not some just uh, a nation flowing with milk and honey. The home that we look forward to as believers in Jesus Christ is a new heaven and a new earth where sin has not touched anything, where nothing has been corrupted, where there is no pain, there is no suffering, there is no disease, there is no famine, there is no drought, there are no more tears, there are no more grief, there is no more sorrow. And that is worth being excited about. That is worth praise and worship and honor. That is worth all that we deal with here. We look forward to that. That's a promise of a home to come. God says, I'm going to establish you. I'm going to give you a home. That's his desire for you, to rescue you, to establish you. And to bring his, he gives another desire, a desire to bring his people close. He says there at the end of the passage that we've been looking at in verse 12, he says, but I will be with you and this will be a sign for you that I have sent you that you have brought the people out of Egypt. You shall serve God on this mountain. God makes another declaration to Moses, another declaration of his plan and of his desire. And that declaration is that, I'm going to do amazing things through you, Moses. I'm going to rescue my people. I'm going to bring them home, and you're going to to worship. You're going to serve me here. I'm going to bring my people close to me. Again, one of the remarkable things that the Bible explains to us and that we experience as believers is that we serve a God that doesn't just stand in the distance and occasionally do things in human history. We serve and know a God who cares about us. We know and serve a God who desires to bring us close so that we can have that relationship with Him, that we can experience things with Him. When Melissa and I first started talking, and I say talking because we were 12 hours apart driving. Um, over roads that made you feel like somebody had been punching you in the kidney for 12 straight hours. We, the only way for us to date was through Zoom, okay, and, and through video conferencing. And at first that was okay, but as time progressed and I got to know Melissa better, what I found was an increasing desire for her to be near me, for her to be close. And even today, When we go on trips or when we're separated for some reason for any length of time, there is an increasing desire during that time for her to be close, okay? For her to be near. Multiply that by a million and you have the desire of God to bring his people close. For them not to be distant, but for them to be near him. Remember what it says in Revelation 21. It wasn't just a promise of a new heaven and a new earth. It wasn't just a promise of the absence of suffering. Notice what he says there towards the beginning. He says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. What is God's desire in rescuing? What is God's ultimate desire in establishing a home for his people? It's that he would be able to dwell with them. One day we will no longer rely on mere faith, as great as that is, for God. We will be with him in a tangible, real way. We look forward to that. God says, this is my desire to rescue, to establish, to bring my people close It was true for the people of Israel through Moses, and it is true today for us through Jesus Christ. So how does God go about doing that? What are the means by which God uses to save people, to rescue people? Well, first, God often uses his people Notice here in our passage that we've talked about, he shares with Moses the desires that he has. And then in verse 10, he says, come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel out of Egypt. You see, the normal means by which God chooses to bring about rescue in an individual's life is to use his people. To use people like me, people like you, people like, in, like us in churches around this community and around this nation and around this world, God's normal means of, of bringing salvation into an individual's life is through his people. He used Moses to go to Egypt. He uses Paul to establish churches. He uses grandparents and parents. He uses classmates He uses people to share the gospel. In all my time, in being in church and being around believers and knowing Jesus Christ, I've heard so many testimonies and stories about how Jesus has saved people and how he's entered in their life. Very, very, very few of them, less than probably 1% have I ever heard someone say, I was completely alone. I'd never heard the name of Jesus Christ ever in my life, and God saved me. The vast majority, 99% of people that come to know Jesus Christ, there is someone that walked into their life, and, may, and usually multiple someones, that God has taken into their life and expressed his love and his mercy and his grace and his forgiveness and his plan for them until finally they said, you're mine and I'm yours. Save me. It's a multiple thing. God uses people, and God often uses those with connections. God often uses those with connections. Let me clarify a little bit here what I mean by looking at Moses. This is something that maybe we skim over sometimes and we don't really put, an, put some thought into. But Moses, remember, is saved by a baby as Pharaoh's, by Pharaoh's daughter, okay? Pharaoh's daughter then turns him back over through an amazing set of circumstances to his mom who raises him from when he's you know, a nursing baby until he's a young, young man, young adult. At that point, probably early teenage years, he goes and he lives in the palace with the Pharaoh and the Pharaoh's daughter. So he knows not only the Hebrews and the Israelites, he also knows everyone in the palace. Now the verse at the end of chapter 2 tells us that that Pharaoh died and a new Pharaoh came up. Well, how does Pharaoh, how does that normally work? It's usually the Pharaoh's son, right? Right. So it would be a sibling of the sister, of the daughter of Pharaoh, normally. Sometimes it's a grandson. So when Moses walks back into that palace, that new Pharaoh is a man that at one time he may have called uncle, or he may have called brother or cousin. The point is, when he walked back into the palace, they knew him, and he and he knew them. There was a connection point there. And that wasn't an accident. As Moses stands before them and says, Thus saith the Lord, there had to be a little bit of them going, Aren't you Moses? (laughs) I remember you when you had acne all over your face. God uses people, though, with connections. He has put you exactly where he has put you for a reason. He's put you in the job he's put you in. He's put you in the classroom he's put you in. He's given you the coworkers and the classmates and the family and the friends and the neighbors and the acquaintances. He has given you all of those people for a purpose. And he has given you those relationships for a purpose because God not only uses his people to rescue, he uses the connections that he has established for that purpose as well. God uses his people, and God often uses those connections, but God also confounds the world. God also often confounds the world. Moses, standing in front of that burning bush, has to be remembering some things. One, he's remembering why he's not in Egypt anymore. You go through chapter 2, and you find that Moses... ...defended an Israelite, a man that was being beaten by a slave master. Moses defends that Israelite. And in defending him, he ends up killing the slave master. And because of that, Moses flees for his life from the palace. He flees for his life from Egypt. And he finds himself in the desert. And now he's standing there, a shepherd of not his own sheep. He's the shepherd of his father-in-law's sheep... And he's standing before this burning bush and God is saying, I'm going to send you back to Egypt, back to the palace, and you're going to lead my people out. And Moses is like, I don't think you understand. I'm not exactly welcome. There's a reason that I left. I'm a shepherd. It's not even my own sheep that I'm watching. I'm by no means wealthy. I'm a man that is by no means a man of prestige. In fact, he says, I am slow to speak. We get the idea that through the through the Hebrew that there's a possibility that Moses had a speech impediment. He goes, "You want me to walk in front of the Pharaoh and do what?" But God says, "No, I want you." Because God loves to use what the world sees as weak. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 starting in verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. God uses, often uses his people. He often uses the connections that he has given his people, and he often uses the weak to confound the world so that all the glory may go to him. However, when he does that, oftentimes, and when he points to us and says, I want to use you, I want to use you, we come up with excuses We come up with excuses. Moses certainly does here. (coughs) Moses stands before the burning bush and says, God, I don't think you understand who you are talking to. I don't don't think you understand what's going on here. I think this is a crazy plan. He says, who am I? Who am I to go and to speak to Pharaoh? God's response is something in the line of, you're the one that I've chosen. I've I've gifted you in certain ways. I want to use you We too stand before God sometimes and we hear him say, I want to use you. I want to use you to to teach that Sunday school class. I want to use you to go visit that individual. I want you to go talk to that person about the love of Christ. I want to use you in this way or that way. And we stand there and we say, who am I? I can't do that. God looks at us and he says, you're mine. The prophet Isaiah stands there and says, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. What is God's response to that? He takes a coal from the the altar and he touches it to Isaiah's lips, figure in, in, in the imagery, cleansing him. God says, you're mine. You're my child. You don't worry about all the other stuff. I'm the one that adopted you. I'm the one that cleansed you. I'm the one that gives you the power. You go. Moses asked the question, who are you? He says, who is, it that, who is it that I'm going to say sent me? <clears throat> and how do they know? How do they know that, that I have any authority? God says, you tell them I am sent you. I am. God doesn't describe himself. God doesn't, God doesn't go any farther. He just says, I am. And then he gives Moses three signs. He gives him the sign. If he takes his walking stick, he throws it on the ground. It turns into a snake. Then he tells Moses, pick it up by the tail. Moses does that, turns back into a walking stick. He has, his, has him stick his hand in his coat. And when he pulls it out, it's diseased. When he sticks it back in, it's healed. He tells him to go. When he gets to Egypt, to go to the Nile, that mighty river that runs through Egypt, to take water out of the Nile, to pour it on the ground. And when it does, it'll turn to blood. He gives him three, these three signs to say, this is who I am. This is where my authority comes from. In the same way, we can at times look at God and say, how will they know that you have sent me? How will your people know that you have sent me? God does not give us maybe signs and, and miracles the way that he does Moses. No, he gives us something better. He says, You tell them Christ crucified and Christ resurrected. You see, all of Christianity rises and falls on the resurrection, on Jesus Christ coming back on the third day. He says, You point them to Christ crucified. You point them to the resurrection. And if they're mine, they will know who you are. And they will know that you speak the truth. But we have that excuse Who am I? Who are you? And then we have the countless excuses, I can't because. Moses stands before a burning bush. He's heard the word of God speak. He's heard the plan of God. He's heard the power of God. And yet Moses stands there and says, I can't. I can't. I can't because of my speech. I can't because of who I am. He says, I can't do it. Find somebody else. We stand, we at times can stand before God and say, I can't. God, you don't know my situation. You don't know my past. You don't know what I've done. God, you don't know the physical limitations that I have. You don't know the financial limitations that I have. God, I can't send someone else. God's response is, no, I want you. Paul stands before God and says, please remove this thorn from my flesh. Please remove this weakness from me. God says, God's response is, my grace is enough. Oh, friend, that we would understand that there is no excuse that God cannot overcome when he sends his people. He looks at Moses, verse 12, he says, but I will be with you. It's very familiar to the phrase or very similar to the phrase that Jesus Christ gives to the disciples when he's sending them out in that great commission of Matthew 28 that we talked about a few weeks ago when he says I am with you until the end of the age. You see God's response to all of your excuses is I will be with you and his presence changes everything. His presence changes everything. If Moses were to walk into Pharaoh's palace and say, let Israel go, and he did not have the power of God behind him, if he did not have the presence of God with him, he would have been killed, or at the very least, laughed out of the place. But he goes with the presence of God, and God's presence changes everything. He goes with the power of God, and God's power is enough. It's not Moses who, who does all of those miracles. It's not Moses who frees his people. It's not Moses who parts the Red Sea. It's not Moses who meets them at the mountain. It is God. And when we go in the Great Commission to go and to rescue others, God goes with us. And it is not by our power that their eyes are open. It's not by our power that their hearts are softened. It's not by our power that they are saved. It is by His. And His power is enough. And His power purpose will succeed. Jesus tells Peter, when Peter confesses that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, he tells Peter, upon this I will build my church, and the gates of heaven will never prevail. His purpose will succeed. We see it in, in the story of Moses, right, in the story of Exodus, that God goes They do in fact lead the people out of Israel. They go through the journey through the desert. They get to the promised land and they are there established as a people and a nation. God fulfills his promises. His purpose will succeed. All believers, all believers are on a rescue mission. All of us have been called to take the good news of what Jesus Christ has done, his desire to rescue his desire to establish and give a home, his desire to call, to pull people closer to him, all of us have been given the rescue mission to proclaim those truths. some of us are called to go to one. Some of us are called to go to 10. Some of us are called to go to hundreds or thousands. The reality is the number doesn't matter. What matters is how you will answer this question. Will you believe in the word and the mission of God or will you believe the excuses of your heart? How will you answer that question? Will you believe in the word and the mission of God Or will you believe in the excuses of your heart? Brother and sister, what will it be? That's the question before you this morning. God has shared his desire to save, to establish, to draw his people close. He shared that his means of doing so are often his people to go and to share that message. What will be your response? I'm going to ask the praise team to come back up, and we're just going to have that time of response this morning, brother, sister. The questions before you. Maybe this morning, God's putting someone on your heart—a coworker, a classmate, a friend, a family member, an acquaintance. God's saying, I, I gave you that relationship. I gave you that situation so that you would go, that my desire may be fulfilled. Will you do it? Maybe this morning you're sitting here, and it is dawning on you for the first time that there is a God who created you, who loves you, who desires to have a relationship with you, but you have never pursued Him. You've never opened your heart to Him or your life to Him. You've been looking for things your whole life and you've always come up empty and this morning you say, I want Him. I want Him. This morning, will you ask Him to forgive you of your sin? Will you believe that He is who He says He is? That He's the God of all the universe and will you commit to following Him with with the rest of your life? Say, I've tried it my way, it doesn't work. I want to do it your way. Will you do that this morning? Will you join this team, this family on mission to know his purpose, his desire, his love, his grace, his mercy, to know his home, to know his presence? Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning. Father, and you are wonderful. Father, I am... I am amazed that you, that you saved me. Lord, I, I didn't deserve it. I wasn't worthy of it. But Father, you put in motion long before I was born a plan to come and rescue me. And I am thankful. Father, I know many in this room as I look around that you have done the same thing for them. And we are thankful. And yet, oh Lord, we look around this room and we also see those that aren't here. Who we love and we care about, who you have given us relationships with, and who you desire to rescue. Father, may we believe in your word and not the excuses of our heart. Father, may we respond to your word this morning. Father, I pray for the one here that doesn't know you, that this morning you would give them the courage not only to accept you as their Lord and Savior and commit to following you, but also to go and tell someone, hey, I made this decision. What do I do next? Or that they would step out in faith and say, Where do we go now? Father, we pray this in the beautiful name of Jesus Christ.